thank you. I have to thank Sarah for keeping me sober the last 12 years. <laughs> My name is Mary, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, Mary. And I am a page 21 alcoholic. And I'll tell you about that later up if I don't forget. If I forget, somebody tell me, because it describes me exactly when they wrote the big book and I was still a teenager. And I am a born and bred Texan, and when I drank, I was the lady up to a pint. <laughs> Before I begin sharing my talk with you, I want to tell you about my medallions that I'm wearing this morning. This is my gold medallion that my sponsor, Willie B. of Spring, Texas, gave me 30 years ago on my fifth AA birthday, my first AA birthday. 30, yeah. And Willie has been my sponsor the last 17 years because one of my sponsors moved out of town and one of them passed away. And even though I have been sober 18 years, having a sponsor was so important to me. So I asked Willie, and it's been a real good trip. Now, uh, this medallion, this little story attached to this bronze medallion, did any of you ever see the best little whorehouse in Texas? <laughs> well, there's a little story attached to this medallion. There was a famous whorehouse at LaGrange, Texas, called the Chicken Ranch. It had been in business for over a hundred years, and it was pretty close to the University of Texas and pretty close to the Texas A&M, and it was a money-making business. Well, a TV personality in Houston accused the sheriff at LaGrange of taking bribes to keep the Chicken Ranch open. Now, I don't doubt that he was taking bribes, either in money or trade. <laughs> that old boy had a bird's nest on the ground, didn't he? <laughs> anyway, with all the publicity and hullabaloo, they had to close the chicken ranch down. Now, I have heard that some people in Texas wanted to make a, a, a monument to the chicken ranch, have a Texas monument with the roadside to the chicken ranch. And I have also heard that grown men cried when they killed the chicken. <laughs> also some wives. Now, I've had my beads for several months and worn them a couple of times, and I looked down one day and I saw a chicken and a rooster engraved on this bronze medallion. And I was so interested about that, and I nearly fainted when I read what was on that. Because on one side of my medallion, it says the chicken ranch, LaGrange, Texas. <laughs> And on the other side, it says, good for all night.
I took my first, I mean, my sobriety, I have been sober ever since April the 21st of 1964, one day at a time. And this is a miracle. And this miracle of sobriety, this amazing grace, is because of a divine and loving providence, because of my two beloved sponsors, Gloria and Lee, and because of the loving fellowship of people just like you. I grew up in the West Texas town called Breckenridge, and my mother and father were the social leaders of the church group in this town, and they entertained a lot. And, uh, but they never served alcohol, and they didn't drink alcohol. But they weren't for it, and they weren't against it. They just didn't have time for it. And uh, my little friend's parents at the country club said, drank alcohol and served alcohol, and it was just all right. And I grew up in my formative years thinking alcohol was a beverage. And the good Lord knows it ain't no soda pop. It's a mood altering chemical formula. And it was so toxic to me, it almost cost me my life. Now, I am fascinated with the Marian kinds in AA and out of AA. There was, there was a man once in, in Houston, been sober a long time, and he had already been married 11 times. <laughs> and I sponsor a woman that recently married for the ninth or tenth time. She lives out of the state. And I even heard about a man in West Virginia that said he had jars of peanut butter that lasted longer than some of his marriages. <laughs> I will never know what joys I missed, what ecstasy might have been mine. I have been married all of my life to the same husband, one day at a time. <laughs> my husband died three years ago of Lou Gehrig's disease, but when he died, he had been sober 32 years in my time. I am the mother of two grown sons. And I thank God every day they're broke and wrecked. <laughs> you taught me early in my AA life that I could not live my son's life. The only life I could live was mine. And because I was teachable back there in the beginning, I let go of these sons and they lived their life, tend to their business, and I lead my life and tend to my business. And we have a pretty good relationship. Now, I am a grandmother. I am also a great-grandmother, but I ain't the babysitting kind of grandmother. <laughs> the idea of making cookies and playing hide-and-seek is just not the way I want to spend my one day. <laughs> and I belong to an old and honorable profession. I am a housewife. <laughs> now, I am not a member of the oldest profession. 
considered my mean personality and how scrungy I looked, I would have starved to death. <laughs> I took my first drink when I was a senior in high school, and it ended in complete disaster. I got drunk, I got sick, I started throwing up on everybody just like a flamethrower. And everybody was scurrying to get out of my way. I still remember. And this was so humiliating to me that I didn't drink anymore about the next eight or ten years. And in that time, I had married. I was the mother of these two small sons. We were buying a new used home and a new used car all on one salary. And there wasn't enough money left over for me to have help with my housework. And I had an awful lot of housework to do, and I hated housework. Still do. You know, Irma Bombeck says, housework, if it's done right, can kill you. But I felt about housework like this little hippie bride. She told her best friend, she said, Oh, housework is such a drag. She said, You wash the dishes and make up the beds, and three weeks later you have to do it all over. One day I was trying to wait through a big ironing, and back in those days you had to hire everything but the socks and the underwear. And I was trying to get through this big ironing, and a friend came by named Alice Jane, and she suggested a cold beer. And it was a hot, humid Houston afternoon, and I said, sure. When I drank that beer that afternoon, a miracle happened. I felt so good. I was happy, joyous, and free. I was, got through that ironing, had dinner on the table, and I thought, well, I have found the answer. Huh? You know, you could buy six ice-cold bottles of beer back in those days for a dollar. That's cheaper than a maid any time or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I, st I started drinking two to four beers a day to get through my housework, four to six, six to eight. I had the cleanest house in Houston. <laughs> I even put newspapers under the cuckoo clock. <laughs> when, I, when I got up to eight to ten beers, I decided I'd switch to bourbon. And within two years after drinking the two beers that afternoon, I was in serious trouble with my alcoholism. That is also the day that my alcoholism kicked in, but I didn't know it. Now, on page 21 of the big book, I am described in three sentences with my personality change. The first sentence says the alcoholic does absurd, incredible, and tragic things while drinking. He is seldom mildly intoxicated. He is always insanely drunk. 
more or less insanely drunk. And that describes me to a tea. Because my husband is an alcoholic, too. I, I, anyway, when I had this personality change, it became so dangerous and so bizarre that my husband had to take the firing pins out of all the guns in the house. I guess I thought all husbands did this. I don't know. But anyway, because when I would... Uh, they was, my husband and I'd get in a fight, or they'd start calling me names or argue with me or criticize me. They wouldn't get off of my back, and I'd just grab the gun, and I'd try to shoot them. Now, I was going to tell them, I'd just go shoot them. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> in the beginning, <laughs> in the beginning, they hit the guns from me, but they'd get careless, and I could find them. So they got to where they locked up all the ammunition for me out in the clubhouse under a great big lock. And they had me poor for a while. One morning I'd got my husband off to work and these two boys off to school. And I was sitting in my living room watching the clock on the mantel. Now it wasn't a fancy clock, it was just an old plain old clock. I was watching the clock on the mantel and when it got straight up nine o'clock, I could go to the liquor store which took 15 minutes. Many a time I had gotten to the liquor store before it opened, and I would be, I would be standing out there with those blondos and those weirdos. <laughs> and it was humiliating. You know, it was just a matter of degree. That's all it was. But anyway, while I was watching the clock, I thought, I know just what I'll do. They, my husband wouldn't let me shoot him the night before. <laughs> and there's lots of times he needed to be shot. <laughs> He'll be knocked up all the shells away from me, and I thought, I know just what I'll do. I'll go to the liquor store, come back by the hardware store, and I'll buy my own ammunition. <laughs> and I didn't buy ordinary ammunition. I bought hollow points. <laughs> now, this is ammunition that is not designed to wound or to weak. It is designed to devastate. Because when one of these shells hits an object, it spreads out like this and just tears a big hole through everything, whatever it comes to. And so this little wife and loving wife and mother came home from the hardware store with several boxes of devastating ammunition. But I knew what my family would do, what my husband would do, if she realized what I'd done. So I started hiding these shells upstairs and downstairs and under the curtain and under the roof. Wherever I could think to hide 15 or 20 shells, I hid them. You know, I've often wondered what those people thought we sold that house to. <laughs> but you know, nothing, I had outwitted an alcoholic husband and two small sons, and nothing happened for several months. Now, I didn't always, they called them my spells. And I didn't always have a spell when I was drinking. Sometimes I got drunk and loved everybody. Sometimes I got drunk and was industrious and cut the grass and, you know, washed all the windows. And sometimes I got drunk and just peacefully passed out. But I never knew what was going to happen to me. But it had been several months, and my husband and 
two sons were out in the backyard fixing horseshoes, and they were having such a good time. And I was in the house. My husband is a beer alcoholic. My box was full of beer, and I was drinking his beer. Then I'd go in my bedroom where I had three or four half pints of Old Crow, and I'd take two or three slugs of Old Crow and come back and chase it with his beer. I want you to know that 36 years ago, uh, that's exactly what I looked like, a black-haired, short-nosed old crow. (laughs) I'm just glad I didn't drink old granddad. (laughs) Or wild turkey. My husband came in to get a beer, and he looked at me, and he says, Mary, how in the hell can you be so drunk on two beers? I looked up at him so innocent. I said, I don't know. (laughs) It must be my metabolism. And that, that satisfied him. Neither one of us knew what the word meant, but it sounded good. <laughs> and when, anyway, after he left, I kind of, I was going into my spell, and when he asked me, you know, why I was the drug, that's when I thought, well, I'll just shake them up again. It was a good, mean spell I was getting in. So I got the 22 automatic rifle, which I had won one night in a poker game when I was drunk. And I loaded it with these hollow point shells, and I went out on the back porch, and I just fired into his friend two, three times, and I did shake them up. <laughs> you never saw a covey of quail scratching the roof. You know, one went east, and one went west, and one went over the cuckoo's nest. But anyway, one ran behind the boat shed, and one ran behind this great big oak tree, and one ran behind the side of the house, and they were catcalling back and forth. What in the world? Had I double-crossed them again. And they came to two conclusions. The first conclusion was that gun was loaded. <laughs> and the second conclusion was so was I. So it was after this that my husband started taking the firing pins out of all the guns in the house. Now, there isn't a man in this room this morning that got drunk and emotionally or physically abused his family that I can't identify with. I know just exactly where you're coming from. Because it was after this, when I, in my insanity, when I felt threatened, I would revert to the butcher knives and the meat cleavers and ice picks. Many a morning I have gotten up to fix breakfast for my family, and I would open the knife drawer. There wouldn't be a knife, a beer opener, ice picks. There wouldn't be anything in that drawer with a point or an edge on it. And my heart would just sink. 
and I would make that long, slow walk down to my son's bedroom, knowing what I was going to find. But when they checked out all right, oh, I remember how relieved I was. But when I had found these knives in that great big meat cleaver up under their pillows, I would know I had just been dreadful the night before. And I'd reach up under the pillow to get a knife and take it back so I could finish breakfast. I put the knives in the sink, and I had a little window over my kitchen sink, and it faced out toward the east. And always about this time, the sun was rising. And I remember looking through the sun, through the trees at the sunrise, and that was such a beautiful sight. And I thought, you know, if there is a God, He's in the sunrise. And I would pray, and I would say, My God, my God, I have done it again. What is the matter with me? I didn't know I had a disease called, called alcoholism that was causing this insane behavior. And this is when the suicide attempts came into play. I won't bore you with all of them because you can tell they didn't succeed. <laughs> but I also knew that the law of averages was going to catch up with me, and one of these days I was going to kill myself. And I did not want to die. I just didn't want to live this terrible, sick way I was living. So I decided I'd go to the doctor. Let him find out what was wrong with me. And this was the beginning of my prescription phase of my alcoholism. I took energizers, stabilizers, tranquilizers, barbiturates, and a lot of narcotics. And back in those days, I remember buying a lot of paragoric and I poured in a Coca-Cola. Paragoric had opium in it. And anyway, I took the whole drug spectrum. It wasn't odd at all for the druggist to call me and say, Mrs. Moncrief, there is a new prescription on the market, and I thought perhaps I'd help you. I'd say, Mr. Blank, you just send it out. <laughs> now, my doctor owned the clinic, he owned the drugstore, he owned interest in the hospital, and he owned the cemetery. He had me coming and going, didn't he? <laughs> now, I never smoked pot. I never used cocaine. Never, uh, never snorted cocaine. Never smoked pot. For three reasons only. That's the medical profession, the pharmaceutical company, and the liquor industry. With these three organizations going for me, I didn't need anything else to help get me through the day. <laughs> And the doctor was interviewing me, and I told him that I drank nearly every day, and nearly every day I got drunk. And I told him about my suicide attempts and everything. So he did a whole battery of tests on me, a liver function test, a spinal tap, the whole works. And I was the healthiest woman he'd ever seen. And I was dying of alcoholism. And uh, he, he was alarmed, though, about my suicide attempts. So he put me on a weekly series of vitamin and hormone shots, and he put me on the amphetamine drug, which is the pet pill. Did he all have to take any amphetamine pet pill? Ah ha ha! Well, this uh, that, uh, mine was a dextrodine 
of pimple, 50 milligrams. And this is wonderful medication if it is used right. It is, a, it is used for depression and is also used in weight loss. What happens is it jazzes up your thyroid and just gives you all kinds of energy. It depresses the appetite centers in your brain and you don't get hungry. So if you jazz around all day and don't eat, you're going to lose weight. But you're also going to lose some of your marbles if you... <laughs> if you abuse these pills the way I did. But anyway, I came home from the doctor's office with a clean bill of health and a great big bottle of amphetamines. <laughs> and I weighed 90 pounds, dripping wet. <laughs> but I remember the glory of taking that first amphetamine. Oh, my God, I thought I had been reborn. Ah, I felt I could walk on the waters. And I know I, anyway, I cleaned up the house and gin around and everything, and my husband came home that night from work, and the boys met him and said, Daddy, guess what? Mother feels good. <laughs> but this wonderful medication had a, dry, had a bad drawback to it. I was so exhilarated and happy, I couldn't sleep. I called the doctor about this, and he, he sure did want me to sleep. So he sent me my prescription for my first sleeping pill. So I was getting up in the morning, and I was taking the pet pill. I was taking a sleeping tablet at night. That's fine for several weeks, but the icebox is still full of beer. I'm still alcoholic, and I start drinking and losing control, going into one of my spells. And I called the doctor about this. And he was of the opinion that the speed run of the amphetamine needed to be slowed down. And there was a brand new drug on the market called a tranquilizer. <laughs> he said, I'll send you a prescription. Back in those days, they delivered medicine, believe it or not. And the bottle had the magic words on there, take as needed. <laughs> So I was getting up every morning, taking my pet pill, the tranquilizer through the day, the sleeping tablet at night, and of course I was dubbing, tripping, quadrupling all of his medication. I was also going every week and getting my vitamin and hormone shots. And all of this medication combined with alcohol was just taking a dreadful toll of me. My naturally curly hair became limp and stringy. I went around in those days with one eye closed because I was half cross-eyed. <laughs> I had a green cast to my complexion with undertones of yellow. <laughs> now, if, this, if that's not bad enough, cross-eyed, you know, green, and skinny, skinny cross-eyed and green, I was crying. I'm 35 years ago, or 40 years ago, I was black-headed, boy, 
that I was growing a fine black beard. And a prominent mustache across my upper <laughs> Now, I don't know how long I had looked this way. But my family would not have said a word to me if I had been going home to a tail. <laughs> they wouldn't say anything or do anything that would upset Mother and put me in one of my spells. But one day I had to go someplace and I had to powder my face. And this is when I made an amazing discovery. If you have a beard, you can't powder your face. I looked through that haze of powder just all my <laughs> And I thought, I thought, surely I'm not supposed to be growing a mustache. <laughs> and I took myself to the doctor's office, just as fast as I could get there. And back in those days, you didn't have to have an appointment. You just went out there first come, first served. And while I was waiting for him to see me, I thought, well, I have three choices. I can become the bearded lady in the circus. <laughs> I can start shaving every day. <laughs> Or I can kill myself. <laughs> when that doctor came in, looked at me, turned my face from side to side, and he said, Honey, I'm not worried about that on your face. It's caused from the hormone shots. Then he asked me if I was growing any hair on my chest. most insulting thing anybody ever had to <laughs> in, in my whole life. And I started unbuttoning this button on my blouse and got to this button and it hit me what he had asked me and I was in a blazing rage. I had trusted him and I looked up and said, I don't know you son of a bitch. <laughs> But I better not be. <laughs> you 
you never saw a monkey looking for fleets. <laughs> but I, I was spared that indignity. But you can bet all the rice in China that I quit taking those hormone shots right there. <laughs> and on the way home, I remember telling myself, well, I'm not going to take any more pills and I'm not going to drink anymore. And at that time, I was so dumb, I thought I could do it just by saying it. And within 30 minutes, I was drinking again. I was the same old six and seven, and it was just a terrible life. And I know uh, I went to the library to research alcoholism, and I got the big book. And it, you know, I was, I was going to research this alcoholism in case I got it. I thought what it was. And uh, in the big book, he said alcoholism was a three-way disease. You know, it was mental, it was spiritual, and it was physical. And I thought, well, that's what's the matter with me. I haven't been back to church. I haven't gone to church in six or seven years. And I went back to church and still got drunk. I got special counseling downtown from some of the ministers in the biggest churches and still got drunk. But see, they didn't know anything about alcoholism, and I didn't either. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I was just getting sicker all the time, losing weight. And uh, one of the uh, psychologists that I went to, talking with my medical doctor, put me on the drug antibodies. <laughs> no, you've had some. <laughs> this is medication that if you have antibodies in your drugs in your bloodstream and you uh, drink alcohol, it can make you violently ill. And it even could cause death. So the last six years of my drinking, I stayed sober six weeks to two days on antibodies. Then I'd get off of it and I would drink six, you know, six weeks, two days to six weeks. And the last, and that was a terrible, horrible way to live. And I was getting sicker all the time. But I had to go. Now things start turning around now. I had to go to a wedding in Wichita Falls. I think it was 1963. And uh, at the reception after this wedding, an aunt from another town and I were visiting, and I turned to walk away from Aunt Sydney, and she called me. She says, Mary, by the way, your cousin Gloria is moving to Houston. Says she is in AA now, and she's just doing beautiful. Well, I knew I, 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 knew I had a cousin named Gloria. Okay, well, anyway, I know. The mic's all right, isn't it? Well, let's see. Anyway, the lock. There we go. When Aunt Sidney called these words out to me, there were several hundred people at the reception, and a hush fell over the room. It got so quiet, you could have heard a pin drop. And in this moment of quiet, this moment of hush, something way deep inside of me said, I am going to be safe that somehow, through Gloria and AA, I was going to be made whole again. And you would think, and I, Gloria was a perfect stranger to me, and you would think, after I was going up all these blind alleys, I didn't tell you about my psychiatrist and my shock treatments and everything, but you would think that I'd come back and get in touch with Gloria and everything would just be fine. But finally, I did get in touch with her, and she said, Well, Mary, you are an alcoholic. And I knew she was right. I, I remember 
feeling left me that I was, you know, I, I, I knew she was right. But I wasn't ready to stop drinking. And Gloria talked to me for 13 months before she could get me to go to my first AA meeting. And she would tell me that alcoholism was incurable, it was progressive, and it terminates fatally. And she would say, as an alcoholic, you have three choices. You can get locked up in jail or a mental institution. You can, get to go to, you can die in the cemetery. And it was locked up something, and it was killing. It was a killing disease. I thought that mixed up. That's all right. And uh, she would just scare the liver out of me. Just scare me to death. But our youngest son went away to school in September of 50, I don't even know, 62 or 63. And our, our oldest son had gone off to school five years previously. Now, we didn't have money to send his oldest boy to the University of Texas, but he worked all summer, and then I had a wealthy brother that gave him money every month. That's how he got through the University of Texas. We were drinking up his degree. But anyway, uh, after Roger went away to school, that was the first time in all of my drinking that I didn't have somebody come in and monitor me. Bless their hearts, they had to come in and see if mother was drunk. If they were playing basketball or something out there, I, they woke me up. I'd love to come out there shooting. They didn't know that. They had to check me out. And uh, this is a, and I, I stayed sober every day. I mean, I stayed drunk every day for about three weeks. And on the, this is when I tried to commit suicide in a blackout. Now, I want you to know I was in a rage the next morning. I woke up. I took the attitude that if I was going to kill myself, I wanted to know about it right there. I didn't want to wake up someplace dead the next morning. <laughs> and that's when I called Gloria. We've been talking for 13 months, and I called Gloria, and I said, Gloria, I need help. And she said, yes, honey, I know you do. We have been fooling around about this long enough. And that was the night that Gloria and Lee made a 12-step call on me and my husband. And uh, while we were visiting, Lee got my attention. And he said, Mary, if you could be granted one wish tonight above all others, what would you ask for? And without a moment's hesitation, I said, I want peace of mind. To me, this is the treasure of all treasures in the world. And you know, in the promises, we are told we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. And in my long-term sobriety, I, 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 I'm serene most of the time. And this is a wonderful, wonderful gift. Now, I start in AA, and I stay sober 90 days, and I get drunk. My mother-in-law had come up for Christmas. <laughs> I'll tell about her later. <laughs> I'll tell about her later. I don't have I don't have long I'm talking. But uh, anyway, my husband he he stayed sober ninety days too. But he came in on December the twenty third, nineteen sixty three, with a sense of whiskey under each arm. And I do not remember taking that first drink. I started drinking in a blackout. I woke up Christmas Eve, alcohol all over the room, reeking. I was sick, I was hung over. And it was the first Christmas my little grandson was going to spend Christmas with grandmother. And grandmother was drunk. But I managed to get through Christmas. 
and started back in AA again. And this time I stayed sober 108 days. And this young son that went off to school, he, he wasn't college material. He didn't want to go to school. He didn't want to work. He didn't want to do anything. And every time I turned around, Roger was home AWOL. And my husband was going to call the MPs to come get him. And I thought that was sacrilegious to call the MPs on your own son. <laughs> and so anyway, my husband was drinking. And I remember I started drinking. And I drank for two days. And I don't ever want to forget that last drunk. That was the most horrible time day I have ever been through in my life. I'd walk through the house all all day long, real slow, and I was afraid to look behind me. There'd be a great big gorilla fixing to jump off me. And I, Gloria kept calling me all through the day, and she'd say, Honey, don't drink. Honey, hold on. And that night, Gloria came in and told me after work, and I had been hanging off, and said, uh, You have to get to a meeting tonight. Now, my husband had to teach school that night, and he worked that day. So I said, Gloria, I'm not able to drive. And she could, and I wasn't, but she couldn't find anyone to come take me to a meeting. And she finally got back on the phone and she said, I'll tell you what you're going to do. She said, you're going in your bedroom. You're going to get down on your knees. And you're going to ask to give you the strength to get to an AA meeting tonight. And that was the night I bore Gloria's face. And I went in my bedroom and I knelt by my bed. And all I said was, Dear God, give me the strength to get to an AA meeting tonight. Now, I didn't know it at the time. I was saying the first sincere prayer of my life, that that was the moment that God started healing this shattered woman. Because from the time I rose from my knees, I had never had a compulsion to drink. Thank you. So I started in AA. And this time I started obeying. And the first time I didn't give up my pills. You know, my doctor gave me those pills. <laughs> and you people in AA sure were doctors. But the last time I drank, I came home from the meeting that night. It, oh, incidentally, God did give me the strength to get to the meeting that night. When I got home that night, I started... I, I hid everything. I hid my alcohol. I hid all my pills. I was the sneakiest thing you ever saw. And I started getting all the pills all over the house. And I started throwing them in the... And I, I must have had 300. I didn't want to run out of pills either. And I'd throw them in the commode. And when I got ready to flush that commode, it was just beautiful. <laughs> there was red and pink and green and two-tone and green. <laughs> And I had to flush it three times because some of them floated. <laughs> and I was, as that last pill was fixing to go down that commode, I reached in there. I, want, I wanted to grab one just in case. But I let it go down. And I knew with that little act that I was free from the pill. And I started back in AA and obeying, and I had just had a, well, I, and, Twenty-eight days after I took my last drink, my husband asked me if he could come to AA for his sake. 
thank you. You know, miracles happen all the time. And uh, people would come up to me and say, Mary, it must just be wonderful. You and Lenar are both in AA. Why, you can just have your own AA meeting. <laughs> I wanted to pump them out. We couldn't even agree on the preamble. <laughs> but I'm getting a little well in AA. And after I've been sober a year, I started sponsoring women. I don't sponsor men, but I, I love to sponsor women. And most of them these days are young. And, uh, uh, you know, it's mother. Well, I've lost my place, but it's all right, because that's my greatest delight, is to sponsor women in AA, to give away my sobriety to somebody else. And uh, my, most of them are so young now, that's my word. I was 47 years old before I took my last trip. Now they're coming in. One was 49 the other day. I just thought, and he's young, or about 16. But anyway, I started obeying. And miracles started happening in my life. I didn't know uh, I didn't know how to love. I discovered this after I'd been sober a little while, and I was too sick to give love, and I was too sick to receive love, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I was grieving over this, and I read about a man in California that felt just like I did. He was so dead inside he couldn't he couldn't love anybody, but he borrowed a prayer from someone, and I borrowed his. And every night when I would go to bed, I would say, Dear God, give me a small love to give, a small understanding, and a small love of which I might be worthy. And I don't have to tell you, this prayer has been answered thousands and thousands of times over. I didn't know who this guy was I prayed to. keeping me sober for 24 hours at a time. And I, I, I was puzzled. You know, I just did, I didn't want the God of my childhood. They always said, did God understand? And I thought, you can understand the awesomeness of God. But I read about an old time philosopher named Pascal. And at the bottom of a page, lived in black, all that was written was fret not thyself. If you had not found me, you would not seek me. And I always repeat this, fret not thyself. If you had not found me, you would not seek me. And I thought, you know, if this old God is right, if this old God's right, I've already found God, or God has found me. I don't know which. But that's but that is the, that was the beginning of my slow, real slow spiritual growth. I ain't a fast learner. And but that was the beginning of my slow spiritual growth. And uh, living one day at a time was way ahead of me. And Burns, I can't think of his first name, wrote, Life is like an onion. You peel it back one layer at a time, and sometimes you weep. Well, I could kind of buy this, you know. And I, being sober like I have now, there's very seldom that I weep. Because I do try to live just for today. And my son, James, is with me here today. He, I said, hey, what are you going to do tomorrow? He said, I don't know tomorrow. And I didn't even hear Mother. So he does it better than I do. And... Uh, now, I want to tell you about my mother-in-law. 
I really can't, I can't do justice to what an evil woman she was. <laughs> she tried every day of her life to make me bleed a little bit. But I have married a mother's only son. Don't you girls ever do that. Believe me. And I had been raised to respect my elders. And I didn't want to respect her. I wanted to kill her. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I was talking about this mean mother-in-law, and Gloria finally says, Mary, if you don't quit hating that old woman, you're going to get stuck. And I said, now, just how am I going to do that? He said, well, I'm going to tell you, but you ain't going to like it. <laughs> I said, tell me. Here it is. And she said, well, you're going to pray for that old woman. I said, the hell I will. <laughs> but this was the moment that I borrowed Gloria's face. And I went in my bedroom and I, <laughs> I stood in my doorway for a while. This was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in AA. I had had 40 years of that, and I, but I sure didn't want to let go. Now, I had a place by my bed that I consider safe. And when I got ready to pray for this old woman, I got all the way around the corner of the bed, the foot of the bed, the other corner, way up in the back corner. I didn't want to contaminate my good praying place. <laughs> I got down on my knees and I put my hands together and bowed my head and I said, Now, God, you know I don't mean a word I say. <laughs> but you bless Apple. <laughs> and I got to where at the end of the, my prayer there, and I tap on bless Apple. Bless Apple. <laughs> and I woke up one day and I realized. I no longer hated that old woman. This resentment and anger and bitterness had just been taken away from me. And I want to tell you, though, she never changed one damn bit. <laughs> but she didn't have to change. I am the one that had to change. I'm going to tell you about my husband. My husband is a fishing nut. He is a fishing ass. Now, this is a true statement. He'd rather fish than do anything. One day, this was in sober about five years. I went fishing with you, too. And he had just beat me three solid days in a row catching fish, and I ain't a good loser. <laughs> so uh, we got home that night, and he said, you going fishing with me in the morning? And I said, heck no, boy. I can find something better to do in my time. So I opened the gate for him to pull the boat out, 
and he stopped and he said, are you sure you don't want to go fishing with me? And I said, yeah, let me go get my hat, my fishing hat. That's the most disreputable fishing hat you ever saw. Everything's happened to it. And when I got my hat, I knelt down by my bed real fast, and I said, dear God, protect my house, my home from tigers, and let me beat Lenore catching fish. <laughs> well, we were fishing, and I had, I had it beat, and I said, Lenore, let's go. <laughs> He said, oh, no. So we kept, you know, I kept, I still ahead of him, but he was about to catch up with me. And I said, well, Mark, let's go. <laughs> and he said, well, I have either got to get even with you or beat you if I can. And I said, well, you just forget about that. And he looked at me kind of funny. <laughs> he said, what did you mean by that? Oh, boy. I said, well, this morning when I said my prayers, I asked God to let me beat you catching fish. <laughs> he gave me the meanest look. <laughs> he took his hat off and threw it in the boat and said, Now, Mary, by God, that is dirty poop. <laughs> oh, I'm going to tell you about my raincoat. <laughs> Probably about an hour. Uh, <laughs> my sponsor, Woody B, sponsored me on the convention circuit. She said, now, Mary, don't talk over an hour, five minutes, or, you know, up or less. She said, those AA people can't stand much over an hour. <laughs> anyway, uh, I've been, I don't know how long I've been sober, not very long. It took me over two years to recuperate even a little bit from alcohol and medication. And a friend from Wichita Falls called me, and she wanted to come down and pick out crystal in China. And I said, sure, Virginia, come on down. But I've been real sick. I had there. And I hung up the phone, and she was going to come in. I went and told my husband, I said, isn't that the silliest thing to drive 500 miles to buy crystal in China? And I hated the shop. My husband doesn't know what little treasure he has in having me back. Well, anyway, when Virginia came down, I took her to the New Dealer's department store. They had a beautiful Christian in China. I don't, those things don't mean anything to me. But anyway, I took her to the Christian in China department, and I said, Now, Virginia, you just sit down, and you just take all the time you want. I'm going in the furniture department and sit down, and I'm going to wait for you stop. And as I turned to go away, there uh, there was a picture about as far as that exit up there, hanging on the wall, and it was magenta roses. And they were just, oh, that was the most beautiful picture I had ever seen. And I had to look at that, then I started walking toward that picture. I was drawn to it, just like a magnet. And when I got up there, I looked at it, and I thought, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. But I looked at the price tag of it. And the price tag was $139. And back in those days, we didn't have $139 to spend on the picture. And, but it wasn't important that I couldn't buy that picture. The important thing was I could want something. It was so important. And about a month later, 
I walked in a department store, and there was a black and white half to check raincoat on a model standing right in front of me, and I almost ran into it. And I wanted that raincoat. And I looked at the price tag, and it was $9.95. I could afford $9.95. So it was a size 8 or 10, but it, it had lining. I could hem it up around the sleeve and around the bottom. So I bought that raincoat. I went home and I started hemming up the sleeves and hemming up the bottom. And as soon as I took that last stitch, I wanted it to start raining right there. <laughs> I didn't think it was ever going to rain. Oh, you never saw no gap rat farmer standing in the sky for rain the way I was. And one day I heard the little pitter-patter of rain on the roof, and I thought, oh boy, I'm going to Travis tonight, and I'm going to wear my new raincoat. And my garage is attached to my house, so I put my new raincoat on, and got in my car, and I hummed every step of the way to the Travis school. And uh, when I got there, and I started to get out of the car, open the door, it was just pouring down rain. I've never seen such rain. And I got back in the car, and I slammed the door, and I started laughing all to myself. I had been waiting for three weeks to wear my new raincoat, and I didn't want to get it wet. <laughs> you have just been wonderful tonight. I was talking to the paper out there. He taped me in Jackson, Mississippi or someplace. And he said, if you go in there and have a good time delivering your message, and I want you to know because of you, I have had a wonderful time up here. And thank you for listening to me. <laughs>